Remember the first time you saw a race car on an open trailer? Maybe it was full of dirt, tire marks, and other battle scars. You wondered where it had been, and more importantly, where it was going next. Every open trailer has a story, and we're here to tell it. Welcome to the Open Trailer Podcast. It's season two of OTP. Hello there. My name's Andy Austin, the host of Open Trailer Podcast. And this time out, we kick off the season with one of the most noteworthy individuals in main auto racing over the last 30 to 35 years. This man's accomplishments, as we'll get into, include a Bush North championship. When Bush North was really Bush North, he was beating 50, 60 cars a week at times. He's a champion at the Oxford Plain Speedway. So many pole positions. He was a time trial master in his day, and he still gets it done. Kelly Moore's driving day is far from over, and we'll get into that. Kelly is one of the newest members of the New England Auto Racers Hall of Fame and will be inducted into the Maine Motorsports Hall of Fame in October of 2022. Maine Motorsports Hall of Fame, a division of Maine Vintage Race Car Association, who this podcast directly benefits. If you were inspired by stories in season one or you listen today for the first time because you were a Kelly Moore fan, you are a Kelly Moore fan, and you appreciate what we do, then please consider becoming a member. Subscribe to Maine Vintage Race Car Association through mainvintagerace.org. Now, what do we do? We preserve the history of racing in the state of Maine. How do we do it? Through various channels, through different fundraisers, through Summerfest at Wiscasset Speedway. We'll be doing more live events as the year rolls on through the Maine Motorsports Hall of Fame, through our mobile museum, and just generally carrying the message without these people telling their stories they cease to exist. You can subscribe to Maine Vintage Race Car Association through mainvintagerace.org for less than $2 a month. There are family subscriptions slash memberships and lifelong subscriptions as well. If you appreciate specifically what this podcast has brought your ears today, I certainly appreciate it as your host and consider becoming a patron for $5 a month. All that money goes to travel, to the equipment, to the time and effort it takes to put these together at the level that we do. It's patreon.com slash open trailer podcast. That's patreon.com slash open trailer podcast. This will be the first of three stages because we had a lot of ground to cover with Kelly. And it goes pretty much in chronological order, which means if you're here for the 90s, you may not hear anything about it until the middle of stage number two. Kelly has accomplished a lot from some very humble beginnings, which is what we get into. He's mainly known as the number 47, but wasn't always the number 47. Started off as a 17, and the connection on how he became the 17 is fairly interesting, especially if you're a fan of racing on the mid-coast of Maine. Then, as a successful number 17, you would think he would want to carry that into the Bush North series, but that doesn't happen, and we get into why. Plus, a lot of other great stories. Glad you're here. Let's get to it. The Open Trailer Podcast, season number two, stage number one of Kelly Moore. Enjoy. Well, we 
are here today in the R.C. Moore race shop in Scarborough, Maine, uh, and I didn't know that this palace existed, Kelly Moore. It's uh, it is a bit of a palace. I mean, you walk around; there are so many awards, and it's it's uh, it's a shrine. But it wasn't always this way. It was a working race shop for years. Uh, you know, we had the body shop, the fabrication shop, the assembly shop, and then a place where we kept the cars where they, when they were all done. But mm-hmm. uh, years have gone by and don't do a lot of racing now and kind of taken half of it and turned it into a body shop for my transportation company. And in the room where we used to set the cars where the uh, that were all done, that were prepared to go to the racetrack, my wife uh, decided that she wanted some of the memorabilia and trophies and such out of our house. Wow. <laughs> so she she came down here and uh, and uh, took a day and hung uh, quite a few pictures up, as you can see around here, and uh, had us put some shelves up and brought some of the trophies out of the basement, which she had, they had been uh, summoned to the basement because she was sick of looking at them in the house. So. Right. Kelly's full-time driving days are, are a few years in, in the rearview mirror, and I think the misnomer is now that you've retired from driving full-time, let's say, you have all this time in the world to do all these other things, and that hasn't been the case at all. <laughs> no, no, that was uh, that was kind of uh, misconstrued from a lot of people's. Mm. They thought when I raced, I raced full-time, and uh, that was farther from the truth than it, a lot farther than the truth than it could have been you know I also ran uh, the transportation company my brother and I ran that uh, for years and and still I running it but uh, you know I was very involved in it when I was racing and back f- full time so to speak mm. as people thought so tell me a little bit about the business today how many employees do you have how many shops do you have and how many miles does it cover well today Andy we've got um We've got a little over 300 employees. It's uh, where we had a lot more than that before the pandemic, of course, but we're, we're uh, a little over 300. We have five locations. We're in Tampa, Florida, McBee, South Carolina, Troutman, North Carolina, which is just outside of Mooresville, and uh, uh, Pittston, Pennsylvania. And then here in Maine, we have the main location. And in Maine, we have uh, six locations that trucks park all around the state of Maine. So. Uh, facility started out here in Scarborough, Maine, and, and it kind of blossomed from there. Yeah, I mean, it's quite the operation. I know your phone's blowing up on uh, on a pretty regular basis. People uh, need to get in touch with you all the time. I mean, how many hours a week are you working right now at R.C. Moore? Uh, <laughs> that's really hard to say. Yeah. but uh, Your wife might know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm here. I'm, I'm here every day. Uh, you know, I usually get here and uh, we're in the race shop right now, which is which uh, kind of is a half body shop, half race shop. I come down here every morning, get here, I don't know, between 7, 7.30, something like that. Uh, have coffee with a gentleman that works here, set him up for the day. And then I go up front to the office where the transportation company is. Uh, you know, we have safety department, um, fleet managers, just everybody you check in with, and my maintenance department, just kind of make sure all the in, everybody's standing in line and, and doing what they're supposed to be doing, and then take care of the day. It's quite the retirement from racing. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, that was the that was the misconception yeah. there. That, uh, but I mean, when I get uh, before I even come here in the morning, I'm 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 a guy that's on the uh, on the computer looking to see what what happened. This uh, transportation company operates twenty four seven. And uh, now we've expanded into the uh, warehouse business quite heavily over the last uh, eight or ten years here, and uh, we've got warehouses in four different states now. Wow. Uh, you know, we got a f- 
we've got one warehouse in Pennsylvania that uh, we've got um, 400,000 square feet warehouse and it runs 24-7. So things are happening all night long. You get up in the morning, there's always uh, issues that's gone on or things, that's yes. an- questions that's got to be answered or situations that's got to be addressed. When's the last time you had a day off, like a full day off? Oh, I, I take days off all the time. Oh, okay. But I don't. <laughs> but you really can't really take the day off because my phone is always on my side. It doesn't, mm-hmm. I could be on my boat. My phone's on my side. I mean, right. I went to, I spent a lot of time in Florida this winter, but we have a warehouse, uh, 250,000 square foot warehouse in Florida with, uh, you know, 30 trucks down there and drivers and such. So everybody said, oh, it was nice. You went to Florida all winter and I did, but yeah. I went to the office and, and when I get up in the morning, I'm on my computer and all day long, my computer uh, sets with me. If I'm on my boat, I got my iPad and, and my phone and yeah. <laughs> I'm just, you know, when you have a business like this, um, that's what you do. You, you eat, breathe and sleep the business. And when I was racing, uh, like, people thought full-time. I did that on top of doing this. Uh, we weren't quite as big back in 95 when I won the championship. We didn't have as many employees. We didn't have as many trucks, and we didn't have as many locations. So it was a bit easier for sure. Where did you learn that work ethic? Uh, that was bred into me years ago. <laughs> hmm. I um, My father was always a very, very hard worker, and uh, he, he grew up in the... In the uh, Woods business years ago, and his father was a hard worker, and and uh, <clears throat> my father, I mean, I I, do, I didn't know any different. My he was a uh, he worked. Uh, my father worked from sundown to sunup when I was growing up. I, I didn't really. Uh, my mother and father both worked, even though my father owned a business. My mother worked for another company, and for years and years, and um, that was just the way I thought it was. It, it's not yeah. like uh, you don't see that today, <laughs> but uh, it's just that was natural. That was it was natural to work. Uh, everybody had a job. I mean, I worked when I was in grade school, after school in grade school. I worked in my father's business. And where did you grow up? I grew up in Walderboro, Maine, which is up between uh, up by Damariscotta, Rockland, Maine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's about sixty-five miles up the coast from where we are right now in Scarborough. How did you first become involved with racing? Well, my father, for years, was always intrigued with racing, and then I found out later in my early teens that he actually owned a race car for a short time and that was a very short endeavor i guess he didn't have a very good experience did he drive yeah he did he but it didn't uh, turn out well (laughs) he didn't drive very very much at all and he decided that you know uh he as much as he worked uh, this was not a very prosperous thing to own a race car and try to work the because he was a woodsman like i said he started working when it was daylight and and got through work and when it was uh, it got dark out at night is that how uh you connected with jordan lumber uh no jordan lumber uh is uh, uh they're the, the guys that own jordan lumber uh, richard keith uh les jordan and uh, jonathan jordan their mother and my wife's mother were sisters Oh, that's how I connected. With oh, okay, them. the racing part of it. Get back to that. It, it's uh, it was funny. My father was always intrigued, and I watched him and watched races all the time with him. And we went to the races a lot. And then he started sponsoring race cars. And then uh, he was sponsoring them. And then pretty soon he was owning race cars, and he owned them. And up in Walderboro, Maine, where we were before, and we had a driver Teddy Polino that did a lot of winning. Yeah. 
uh, back in the day in Wiscasset. Unity Speedway did a lot of winning. And uh, he uh, became a commercial fisherman, and there was something to do with the insurance and getting his boat insured and such. He quit racing when he was racing for my father. That was the last time he raced because of the insurance purposes. So the car sat idle for a short time and uh, went through the winter and and come the spring, I said to my father, I said, what are we going to do with that race car? And he says, I don't know. And I said, well, you know, I think probably I can put as many dents in it as anybody did. So uh, we dragged it out. We had an old bus, the old buses that you drive up in the back. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And we had uh, a car that they'd built and uh, I went to, I had no idea what I was doing uh, other than watching and helping them on the race car. And I was like, Seventeen years old, and I took that car and went to uh, Wiscasset. Do you remember the first time that you were at a racetrack as as a fan, as a child? Yeah, that was a very early age. I was that was probably around uh, eleven years old. Wow. Yeah. And yeah. What, what track was that? Wiscasset. Yeah. 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 So I'm trying to do the math. That's that's in the early days of Wiscasset. Yeah, that would yeah. be real early. Yeah. And Wilfred Cronk, if I remember right, yeah. owned it at the time. He, uh, he built Wiscasset, opened it up in 1969. Fast forward a few years, you have this Teddy Polino car. Teddy now in the, uh, well, when this airs, he will have been in the Maine Motorsports Hall of Fame. He's inducted in October. He is? He will be in October. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, so he's going in. We're excited about that. Um, no kidding. So you drove Teddy Polino's car. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That yeah. was your introduction to racing. Yeah, And was. And what, what number were you at this point? Uh, 17. Where did the 17 come from? That's a good question. That's what was on the car, I believe. <laughs> so that was Teddy Polino's number. That was Teddy's number, yeah. So you're... 17 with a crown on the top of it, I remember. I have some old pictures of it, actually. Because the first time I remember watching you, it's 84, 85 in Oxford, and we're skipping ahead a little bit, but okay. uh, but you had that same crown on the car, and I, it always kind of stuck out to me, when, back when you were number seven, 17. But that dates back to Teddy Polino. Yeah, that dates, yeah, that's where, I believe that's where the number come from, and I know that's where the crown come from if i don't remember many of my cars having the crown on it but uh i think you know i thought it was royal crown for rc oh okay. that's what i thought it stood for yeah no i no? don't i'm not really i've never asked i'm not sure why they had that crown on there but teddy was winning i mean he won yeah. he would win at Wiscasset, and they'd go to they'd go to unity the next night and he'd win up there yeah. they, they one year they won I don't know, plus 20 plus races or something, a crazy amount. <laughs> so you take over for a Hall of Famer, no experience whatsoever, and you go to Wiscasset Speedway. What year is this? Andy, that's got to be 75, 76, hmm. something like that. Yes. And, and what was that experience like, your first time? Who helped you? Uh, how, did, how did it feel on the racetrack? Did you have that rush? I, I had a, a good friend of mine, Mike Bowden, his name was at the time, uh, well, still his name, obviously, but mm. uh, he, he, I remember he was my first crew member. He was a friend of mine, and uh, we, you know, I'd worked on race cars, and I'd, I'd worked on cars. I was mechanically mm. inclined, but uh, I really did not know a lot about race cars, and then I attracted this gentleman named Bobby Hayden, that helped me that lived in the same town that I did that uh, uh, was pretty good on chassis uh, down the years as the years went on him and I went to a lot of chassis schools and stuff together but uh, yeah that was uh, you're really making me think back on some of the stuff that that went on years and years ago but uh, it's quite a time and we I mean looking back upon it we I had no idea what we were doing 
So let's take, how old were you when you started racing? 15, 14? No, 17. 17. So 17-year-old Kelly Moore, uh, driving number 17, the Teddy Polino car. Yeah, that's ironic. Where we are today... And in the Taj Mahal, basically, of, of you know, uh, Scarborough here, when it comes to trophies and all the things you accomplished, uh, what were your goals initially when you started racing? Could you imagine that you would land where you are today? I don't think I really had any goals um, at that time, Andy. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I wanted to wanted to race. I'd seen other people do it. I'd watch Teddy win a lot of races. I knew that's something that, you know, I inspired me to to work hard on the car, work work nights on the car, and mm. all alone in the garage. But did uh, you work on his car? I did. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I worked on his car. I helped maintain it at the time. Yep. Um, one of the things I was uh, curious about was, you know, I always ask about the early days and and what it was like. It was casted. Do you remember your first race? No, I don't really. I only I raced that car. I can tell you a short, a real short story on that. I, I raced that car like seven or eight times, and I finally uh, I totaled it in the front stretch wall and uh, didn't get hurt bad. Got my ankles all my ankles. I remember were all hamburged up. Uh, they went down around the pedals because I hit pretty hard. I totaled the car. I absolutely demolished it. And then we ended up going and buying the next class down, which would be like your char. Uh, your charger, charger division, yeah. okay, but it was with V8s. They're basically the same car with narrower tires, and uh, just a, I bought a car off, uh, which was an ex Teddy Polino car, but I bought it off Dave Sinclair. No kidding. Yeah, huh. and uh, and then I raced still over to Wiscasset, and then Wiscasset closed down, and we ended up going to Unity to race. I remember racing up there for like a half a year, and then I built a new late model sportsman, the top class, and went back up there the next year to race and raced with the likes of like uh, uh, Bellows and uh, Burgess, Burgess, yeah. Harvey Sprague, Donnie yeah. Drake, uh, Dave Darvo, yeah, Dave Darvo, Skip Cahill. Wow! <laughs> did you uh, encounter did your past cross Ricky, Ricky Craven when he was running Unity? No, he no. was that was way after me. Okay, because he started in '83. Yeah, so you're probably late '70s at this point. Yes, I'm late '70s because I moved to Oxford in 1980. I started racing Oxford in 1980. Mm-hmm. I remember that. Do you remember your first win? Uh be truthful, I don't. I don't remember the first win. I believe, I believe my first win was at Oxford, but I'm not even sure about that. Wow. Tell me about your high school days. You know, you've, you've already mentioned that you worked with your dad in, in that business. You're working on race cars. What else do you like to do? What kind of student were you in school? Terrible. Really? <laughs> that blows I, I, my mind because to me, you're so, you're such an articulate, well, focused I, human being. I was not, in, I wasn't interested in the reading, the writing. Uh, no. uh, arithmetic, the, the, my math is, it was very good when I was in school, but I wasn't, I wasn't interested in history. I wasn't interested in spelling and writing and that stuff. I I started Excel in school in high school when they came to the when you had the industrial arts, okay. Mm-hmm. And then we had the Votech. I mean, I think the vocational education you could take when you were uh, you went to a, actually a, out of out of the school that you were in daily and went to we went to Rockland, Maine on a bus for a half a day for, to a Votech. So went to an automotive Votech, and that's where I excelled. I didn't. Yeah. The rest of it didn't really interest me. And anything that doesn't interest me, I just didn't put any effort into it. So you didn't go to college. Uh, after high school, I did. I went to a diesel automotive SMVTI. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, and then you know, and I I was, and I done very well. My grades were very very high in that, but you had to take all the academic courses again, and um, you know the algebra and all the different trigonometry and all that different stuff, drafting, and that stuff interests me. Mm. But uh, I, I was not a very good student coming up through school <laughs> until right. I got to something I could put my hands on and really work with. I had the exact same experience. I was not very. I had to take. I flunked English twice. Yeah considering what I do for a living, that seems a little odd. But they brought me to uh, a vocational uh, class. So I get to go and be in media technology for half the day, much like you. And I graduated at the top of my class. Right. But the rest of it, I had no interest in whatsoever. Yeah, it's so, funny. My son was the same exact way. He didn't like right. school, had a very hard time with school. And as soon as he got to high school and got to go to the, the Votex, uh, his teacher actually called me one time and, and, and talked to me and told me at, one, at the vocational school he was going to at in Westbrook, he says, you know, he says, your son is is very good at with his hands. I got him helping me with the class. Wow. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, I just, uh, that stuff so, didn't interest me. I mean, uh, you talk about going to different classes. I remember one time uh, I hated history so bad I'd fall asleep in the class. Well, the teacher figured he'd really <laughs> teach, me a cl- teach me a lesson one day, yeah. and he woke me up when the next class was actually in the room. Oh, <laughs> that's savage. That is savage. Yeah, so that he was trying to... Uh, right. teach me that that really wasn't a thing to do was fall asleep in his class. When um, when you mentioned Ryan was struggling in school, having lived the life that you had uh, through through high school and, and through coming up and everything, could you identify with that or was it frustrating to be a parent on the other side of things and, and want something, I don't know, different for your child or say, how come you can't seem to get school? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, pay attention, do what you can. You, know, you don't need to miss this stuff like I did, but right. uh, no, he pretty much didn't listen to that. No. And everything's <laughs> turned out for him pretty well, too. What's he doing today? Today, Ryan works for the transportation company. He works for R.C. Moore. He <clears throat> lives in uh, Mooresville, North Carolina. He's got uh, he's married and has two kids. Yeah. Two uh, young, beautiful young girls. And uh, he works for the transportation company. He started out uh, just uh, doing, uh, you know, started at the bottom of it like I did. Uh, he now... Uh, uh, kind of watches he's kind of the operations manager from Virginia to Tampa uh, wow. we have a place in we have a place in Troutman which he which uh, where he goes to work every day and then we have another place in McBean at South Carolina trucks trailers warehouse and then the transportation company in uh, Tampa. So he watches over those places, but he actually is in Troutman, North Carolina. Wow. Yep. Getting back to racing a little bit, you graduate high school. You're racing at Unity, or let's, let's, let's skip ahead to when you moved to Oxford. How old are you when you moved to Oxford? I would say I was probably 20 years old, mm-hmm. yeah, 19 or 20, yeah. And what are you, are you starting to work in the family company? Is this something that you always wanted to do, you figured I you would do? I worked in the family company, I worked in the family company when I was in the eighth grade. Yeah. I was getting off the school bus in the eighth grade. Right. <laughs> Every, all kids went home or went to sports. Uh, I got off, I actually got dropped off the school bus my whole eighth grade year and um, went to work in the garage at my father's uh facility you know we had 18 20 trucks or whatever 30 trailers and right. and i did whatever a young kid like that could do um, paint sweep the floor wash trucks you get your first track championship in 1985 or four 84 84 yeah uh tell me about that year yeah, 1984. You know, <clears throat> I went up there in 1980, and I struggled. And I mean, when I jumped from Unity, 
to Oxford, the competition was it was a little stiffer. Uh, there was a lot more cars. I, you know, I was looking mm. around and a lot more cars, a lot more sponsors on them. We're getting a little closer to the city yeah. atmosphere. You know, you, you got you know you've got a lot of. I was racing against Mike Rowe, Russ Nutton, uh, George Babb. Uh, uh, Earl Jones. There was just a lot of different. Uh, there was a lot of different uh, people uh, that I raced against. Uh, that Leland Kangas, um, Vern Hodgkins. I mean, there was unbelievable. Uh, there was a lot of talent at Oxford, and I was at the bottom. <laughs> right. Well, did anybody help you? Uh, get closer to the front. What was that no. atmosphere like? Not at all. <laughs> no. no, I was the outsider. I wasn't from the area. Uh, and typically, would you consider yourself from a racing family? Uh, I mean, your dad raced yeah. a little bit, but very little. Yeah. yeah, but you know, we'd been around racing a long time. But no, I wasn't that. I wasn't accepted. I, I can say I was not very well accepted at the time wow. when I went to Oxford. It took a few years. I took my I took my bumps. I took a lot of bumps. Yeah. <laughs> Matter of fact, uh, uh, Mike and I had a you know we got into I got into eighty two and I started to get competitive. Uh, eighty was a flop. Um, eighty one I I just broke and bent and and had a lot of problems. I and uh, but eighty two I started to come to my own. Uh, eighty three was much better and then eighty four like you said I won the I won the track championship up there. And then 86, I went, uh, that was 84. And then 85, uh, I think I won a tri- triple crown championship in the open championship or something like that up there. Yeah, I mean, talk about that that division, the late model sportsman division at Oxford Plains Speedway. You had Billy Clark, you had yep. Mike Rowe, you had yourself, you had Leland Kangas. Yep. Jimmy Burns. Jimmy yep. Burns, uh, all of these guys. Yep. Uh, what was it like to beat them? Yeah, it, you know, it was... Uh, it was very rewarding back then. I mean, I didn't really realize, you know, I mean, Mike and, you know, he's still, uh, Mike was a hell of a driver back then uh, in his prime. When I came in there, he was in his prime. I mean, yeah. you know you're in your prime. You go in the restroom and, and you see Mike Rowe on the wall, <laughs> okay? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, either loved him or hated him. And uh, and he was, uh, I really didn't even know him. I was just racing against him, a hard, hard nose race racer. And, uh, you know, uh, I think, Mike is about probably eight or ten years older than I am. Right. Thereabouts. So that was another question. You, I wouldn't say were significantly younger than those guys, but you were certainly eight to ten years younger than a lot yeah. of them. Yeah, most so of the guys. So for, for those who are listening to the podcast now, where you, if you're 20 years old, you're half washed up if you haven't made it to big NASCAR, uh, you know, decades ago, you you wouldn't get into the top class until your mid thirties or your forty you know years old. So what was it like being the quote unquote young guy amongst the veterans? Well, like I said, it took a lot of bumps and bruises. <laughs> it was. Uh, Did they, you ever get they, spun on purpose? Well, yes. They they <laughs> taught me a lot of lessons. They yeah. taught me a lot of lessons. That was one of the reasons actually that I ended up at Oxford because uh, I felt I wasn't uh, at the time being a young kid felt I wasn't treated properly at. Unity, and uh, at the mm. time, Ralph Nason owned Unity Raceway, uh, and Ralph was, uh, you know, the elder, you know, my elder statesman, old and, school. Yeah, and um, you know, he felt that um, the races that I was having a problem with at the time, they were just taking me to school, and that's uh, what they were doing. Right. right. <laughs> so I, I picked up my toys and went to Oxford, um, which was a good move for me at that time. But um, you know, it was 
Yeah, I, I took my lumps. So the early mid eighties, uh, you're racing that late model. It's your first experience with the Oxford 250, which to this day is still out there for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me about jumping into the 250 for the first time. Yeah, I, I, I really can't remember the first Oxford 250 I mm-hmm. was in. Did you look that up? I'm not sure. Uh, I didn't look it up, but I remember watching you in the 84 250. Yeah, 84. Mm-hmm. That was your track championship year. Okay, yeah. Uh, that probably was the first year then. And, uh, you know, you we've, uh, you know, as a racer in New England here, I think most races, the Oxford 250 is the crown jewel. And, uh, you know, we've... Uh, We've raced, put a lot in, a lot of effort into that race over the years, and uh, it wasn't until '87 or '88 that I really I came very close to you know getting that crown jewel. We didn't get it, but we ended up second. But that was uh, that was the race you raced for all year long. That's right. what you did as a racer. You Still got, is. You, prepared, you yeah. prepare for that race all year long. How long you've been preparing for the 250 this year, Kelly? Uh, <laughs> a while. Yeah. But uh, I haven't really been, haven't done a lot for it. We've uh, built a new car. Um, Ryan and I are both going to run the 250 this year. And uh, as uh, things turned out, the car that we built for him that we built way back in last November uh, doesn't qualify for the rules at the 250. So... He's he wasn't going to be able to race the 250, and I, um, being as busy as I am, and mm. everything considered, I decided that we we're going to put him in my car. So he's going to run the Oxford 250 in my car this year. Wow! So let's skip ahead to 1986. You race Beach Ridge Motor Speedway, which mm-hmm. is freshly paved, and I don't know. Um, what it's like to walk in your shoes, but one of the most random stats in the state of Maine. I don't know. You can go anywhere. People will talk about the first race won on asphalt at Beach Ridge Motor Speedway was won by you. Yeah, you know that. So in 84, <laughs> I won the championship at Oxford. Yep. So in 85, I went back to Oxford and we ran. Triple crown, right? Yeah, we, we ran that year too. And then in 86, I, I'm, now I'm living in Portland. I, I moved there in 1984. For the business? Yeah, for the business in Scarborough, actually, mm-hmm. in 1984. So it was only natural for me to move on to Beechridge. So they paved the track. Yes, for okay? you. <laughs> yeah, for me. I don't think they paved it for me. They would have paved the pit if they paved it for me. Yeah. But they paved the track, and I'm like, well, it's not dirt anymore, so it's, it's natural for me to race at an asphalt track that's right in my backyard, which is right. literally, what, a half a mile, Andy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, <laughs> we, here, we can where hear we're it. sitting right yeah. here. And uh, so, yeah, I went over to uh, Beechridge. I'd never even, I'd never been around that racetrack in a dirt car. Really? On, on dirt, nothing. Had no. you ever need, uh, attended a race to watch? I had watched a few, just, I mean, m- maybe one or two races there. Right. And the only reason I, I attended those races is um, my father, the car that I ended up driving, that I told you about the Teddy Head. Hmm. My father gave that car to, to Dave Davo and let him run it a couple times down at Beechridge in the dirt. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, before I got my hands on it. Yeah. But anyway, so I ended up going to Beechridge, um, 1986, and I had the asphalt experience as some of the as most of the guys there didn't. I mean, some of them did. Some of them had gone on asphalt. Like They'd Randall, to, Bob Randall. Yeah, some of them gone up to Oxford. George Babb, uh, Bobby Babb, a few of those had gone to Oxford and run the asphalt at numerous times. And I ended up winning the first race, which was, uh, you know, that's one of those things you... Yes. You know, ...goes down in history. It doesn't matter who wins the second one. Right. But uh, we uh, won the first race and won a few races that year. Uh, and then about midway through the year, I ended up leaving. Hmm. Is there a reason why, or...? Well, I... Uh, 
saw the Coors Tour going on. That was the first ACT race when they had the steel body in 86. Yep. Yeah, in the middle of the summer, yep. they came into Beatridge for the yep. first time. Yep. Mm. So I ended up going the Coors Tour route with Tom Curley. And again, I jumped right in both feet. Uh, really wasn't prepared for what I was doing. Right. Uh, really didn't have the equipment to tour around with, didn't have the experience. But I jumped in both feet. And the first race that I raced with Coors Tour was Briar Motorsports, the old 5 8 mile yes. down there. I went down there and knew nothing. Car was, <coughs> car was uh, not brand new because I think I'd run that car at the Oxford 250. Was that the V6? LeSabre. Oh, it was a LeSabre, yeah, yeah, okay. And a V6. Yeah. It was a LeSabre V6. So I ran that. So I went to the course tour race down there and didn't qualify very well, I remember, and started way in the back and ended up third in that race, which wow. was quite an accomplishment for me at the time. Did you find that Briar was uh, similar to Wiscasset? I mean, it's a little different size-wise, but I mean, just kind of wore out asphalt. Yeah, it was, no, uh, Wiscasset had more banking than Briar. Briar yeah. was pretty flat. Oh, right. Turns one and two. Yeah, Notoriously yeah. flat. Yeah, it was pretty flat. But uh, that... that that got me hooked right there. Mm. And then I, st- I raced, I went to Sanair and just started touring around. So for a lot of people going to Sanair, the uh, the old super speedway, which is just under a mile, a lot of speed, a lot of, like think of a basically a mini Pocono. What yep. was it like to go that fast? Was that oh, the fastest you had been? Absolutely. Yeah, that yeah. was a rush. That was, I you know, that was, um, yeah, I was definitely outclassed up there. The, the Dragons, um, you know, uh, the Crouch. Uh, Dick McCabe, I was I, I was definitely a tenth to fifteenth place car up there for sure. Mm. I wasn't prepared for that speed. I'd never been on a racetrack that big. I wasn't aware that you jumped on the course tour in '86 and, and did that so extensively. Uh, what was it like to, you know? I think what we've we've realized here early on is you really haven't been. Um, I would say included in the racing family wherever you've raced, whether it be Unity or Oxford. You didn't really have a lot of time to get some roots at Beechridge, but basically you go on tour with a bunch of guys who are used to going to different tracks every week. There has to be some camaraderie there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it, they, I think you know the Levitts for one. Uh, they opened up their arms to me. They were very, mm. you know, Junior Gardner. That's their personality anyway, and it always was. But they. Uh, I think I was accepted pretty well. Uh, Tom Curley come around and um, you what know, was your experience me. with Tom? Like one of your very first, good. yeah. It really, it really was good. You know, I look back upon it and it was very good. He was uh, he was unique and he um, he did his uh, lecturing and um, reprimanding to all as he did to me, but uh, he was uh, he was one of a kind. What did you get in trouble for from Tom? Oh, I can't. <laughs> Andy, you you name it, I've probably got yeah. in trouble for it. I mean. <laughs> With NASCAR, I got the letters to prove it. With Tom, I just don't have the letters. I've got the lectures. (laughs) But uh, uh, I didn't have any real bad problems with Tom. But uh, he gave everybody equally a hard time to make sure that they knew he was the ruler. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting you had that experience with Tom Curley in 86 because in 1987, you do something quite a bit different because of the whole act. NASCAR lawsuit with Robbie Crouch and Randy LaJoy. Correct. Uh, they go in different directions. Which direction do you go in? Yeah, I, I went to the NASCAR direction. I went to the the, the NASCAR. I had a meeting, I remember, up to uh, up in West Paris uh, at one of the restaurants up there in NASCAR. And they, I remember McCabe and I and uh, a bunch of us went up there and listened to what they had to say. And they formed the uh, Bush North. 
I guess was yeah. what they call it right off the bat. So you were at the very first race in Oxford. Yep. And um, you know it was a, it was a but you had a different number. You didn't you weren't the seventeen anymore. No, uh, that was a, that's another funny story. You know I I was seventeen and I I thought that's what I was going to be and. You know, you go to a local track, you just pull in with your number, and yeah. if you got to put an M behind it or a B or an A or an X or whatever, not with NASCAR. No, no, you got to register your number. Well, I wasn't quite aware of that, so I registered. Um, you know, got my NASCAR license and told them what number is going to be, and I got a phone call, and they're like, "No, you can't be that number." And I'm like, "Yeah, geez, I hope I can because my car's all done and all leaded." Right. When did you make this call to NASCAR? I don't know. Pretty early on. Yeah, it was. Uh, I thought it was early enough on, but uh, obviously not because uh, they said no. A uh, gentleman named Bob Brunell up in uh, New York yes. has got that number. I was going to say. So you became the 47. Ryan ends up becoming the 74. Yeah. All in an indirect way because of Bob Brunell. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Because Ryan, when he was racing, he was 17 also. Was he? Oh, yeah. in the act days. Yeah, in the yeah. act days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Saturday night at Oxford because he, he won a, mm. you know, the championship up to Oxford there in 2001, I think. Wait a minute. So could he not be 17 in the Bush series because of Bob Brunel? Right. Still? <laughs> yeah. So he screwed with two generations of Moors. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Wow. Yep. So let's talk about that. 1987, um, you know, you start, uh, not only is it the Bush North, they're trying to establish um, or reestablish themselves in the Northeast. They also do these things called combo races where you take uh, drivers from the Bush South series and you put some North, you sprinkle some Northern guys in there. Yep. Um, yep. I never knew why they did that from a competition side. As a fan side, I always thought it was cool to see guys like you, Bobby Dragon, Dick McCabe go down there. But what was the, what was the method? behind having Bush North, Bush South combo races? Uh, the method behind it, I'm not really sure. No, you don't know either. <laughs> I'm not really sure why they did that. But it was a way that, you know, you could take so many combination races and put them towards your total Mm-hmm. races that year, your points races. You could kick out a Bush North race if you had a bad race at Star Speedway and you had a 21st and you went to a combination, you got a 10th, you can put that combination in there. So that was one way to try to enhance your points. Um, I think that influenced the championship that year where one driver didn't race Rockingham at the end of the year and as a result, the championship went to the other driver. Is that right? Yeah. I want to believe, I want to believe that's correct, but I don't want to state it as fact on the podcast. Yeah, it, it never, it never really influenced. We did a lot of uh, combination races. Uh, it never really influenced my points. Mm. Um, I never really had that good of races in any of the Bush South races with the exception of uh, where they had a, the, the common, one of the combination races was the Oxford 250 if you right. remember right. Yeah. Uh, New Hampshire International was a combination race. And I'm looking at 1987. You, you say you didn't have the best luck but I mean you're running Dover. You get a seventh place up there uh, okay. combination race. I mean right. what's it like to be a main guy and all of a sudden be racing on the tracks that you've seen on TV and with people that you've only heard about on the radio and seen on TV. Yeah, I mean, that was, there's definitely, uh, it was definitely a thrill to, to go race at those big tracks, number mm. one, just to go race against those guys. I didn't really think about who I was racing against. I was more concentrated on the tracks that I went to. And uh, something that was kind of odd here, just a few years ago, we went to New Hampshire International uh, the museum down there. Mm. And when it first opened up, I, I contributed quite a bit. Uh, well, the company did. I shouldn't say I did. The company did. I see more did to the building of that. And uh, <clears throat> we uh, were one of the uh, people that were invited for the grand opening. Well, Dave Dion was there. And uh, 
and his and his brother too. And uh, we uh, talked a little bit, and, and something that was said that Dave kind of caught me off guard. <laughs> we talked quite a bit that night, and he said to me, he says, you know, I really never knew you when we raced. He said, we raced against each other for the years, but... Now I'm getting to know you. He says, you're not, no, 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 you're not a half bad, bad guy. I always liked your wife, but you're not a half bad guy. I never <laughs> liked you when we raced. so like Dion. <laughs> I never really liked you when we raced, he said. Yeah. I, well, said, that, well, I wasn't supposed to. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing. I, was, I wouldn't take that personal because everything that I've, I've read and talked to Dave about is like, you know what? It's funny. I see all these guys hanging out and, and you know, they're friends and everything today. Uh, that's not how it was. I was there to beat you in yeah. my Ford, yeah. you know, and, yeah, and yeah. That's, that's what he did. When you, and you, that's what sticks out in my mind. Mind when you say, "How do you know? How did you? Uh, what do you think about these drivers you were running against? You know, mm. um, you know, um, Rusty Wallace, uh, Dale Earnhardt. I mean, I ran and ran against Daryl Walthrop. I sat on the pole at uh, Indianapolis Speedway Park, and Daryl Walthrop was on the outside pole. I mean, yeah. that was an accomplishment. But I really, when you're doing it, you don't think about it. You look back upon it, you say, "Wow, that was quite an accomplishment what I did there." But you really don't think about it at the time. So, what about sitting on the pole at Indianapolis Raceway Park with Daryl Waltrip at peak Daryl Waltrip right beside you? Well, next time out, we get Kelly Moore's Welcome to NASCAR moment. I remember when I won the pole, the team was ecstatic. And then once we found out that uh, Bring the Car to Inspection, they started tearing it apart. The team mm. all stood around with these big long faces on. Yeah, we got to put this back together. Yeah. Right. And, and they're inspecting the car after, you know, which they'd already been through inspection, a pretty rigorous inspection in the mm-hmm. Bush South before you even go on the racetrack. So I remember Bobby Scrubs tearing my carburetor apart. He had the carburetor not. He wasn't just checking it with the tools. They had it all apart, laying all over this bench. Okay. And uh, he was a he was good good guy. Bobby was, um, and uh, he he says to, I said what are you looking for? He says I'm going to tell you when I he says if I find it I'll tell you. Stage number two of Kelly Moore on Open Trailer Podcast next time out. See ya.